Hello, and welcome to Two Pews in a Pod. Join us as we explore faith in a modern world with the pastors of Evangelical Lutheran Church in Frederick, Maryland. Now here are your hosts, Pastor Paul Baglios and Pastor Ginger Bennett. Hello, I'm Ginger Bennett. And I'm Paul Baglios, and we're eager to welcome you to this fourth episode in our six-part series on baptism. Today we're going to be talking about some of the elements, the materials, the items, and then the gestures, the actions in the rite, R-I-T-E, of baptism. I will first, however, observe that as we are recording this episode, we are a few days away from Reformation weekend, and we are wearing Reformation red, we the are. vest that I have on for this episode, and the red roses yes. in the skirt that Pastor Bennett is wearing. <laughs> we planned that well. <laughs> <laughs> Did you do that intentionally? It, no, but it worked out. It we, worked we coordinated out. without coordinating. That's right. That's well, right. In, in baptism, I'm glad you pointed it out, and we didn't plan to talk about this, but the red represents the movement of the Holy Spirit, yes. which is in and through all mm-hmm. of baptism. Um, but we were going to start out by talking about That's the right. water. We've already digressed beyond <laughs> the point of recovery. We'll see if we can bring this train back onto the track. But we did think that we would first talk about the water used mm-hmm. in baptism. People might wonder, what is the source of the water? It's not very yeah. complicated um, here at Evangelical Lutheran Church as at many other places that I'm familiar with, the source of the water is the tap. Mm -hmm. Um, We put water in our baptismal font drawn from the tap. And hopefully it's slightly warm. (laughs) Well, I always make a point of making sure it is tepid. Very um, good, very good. So that it's not going to be bracingly cold (laughs) or or injury-inducing hot. (laughs) Well, you know, there are different traditions around the water itself, right? Traditionally, historically, it was a stream, something that had moving water. Mm. And then um, you also see a lot of baptismal fonts that are actually fountains um, or pools that have water that kind of naturally go in and out of them, um, which is an absolutely fun way to capture the both in. You have um, this... uh, movement of water in and through. One church I saw had a fountain that looked like a huge chalice, if you will, and it just overflowed out of the top, which always made me think of God's abundance Mm -hmm. in love. And we wanted to talk about that. Not only is there a question about what is the source of the water used for baptism, but in what sort of vessel or body. Mm -hmm. Um, And here in Christian practice, the sky's the limit. <laughs> Almost anything imaginable. Mm-hmm. Uh, before we began this recording, we were commenting briefly. I once participated in a baptism that was done in a swimming pool. And this was at a youth summer Christian camp, and a teenage girl had wanted to be baptized and had asked if we might arrange for this. Mm-hmm. And So we gathered in the shallow end of the swimming pool at this camp uh, for her baptism. And what has been the most memorable (laughs) place in which you've 
Well, so so my own baptism as a child, I was six. Um, I was baptized in Michigan in a horse trough. So that was kind of fun. Tell us about that. Um, well, so that was many moons ago. But again, it was in Michigan. It was in the summertime. And... Um, it was an immersion baptism, so um, so yeah, very different. Now I have a friend who recently um, had a parishioner who uh, requested to be baptized in um, in a stream or a lake or a creek or something like that, preferably moving water. And so she was going through trying to figure out all of the <laughs> all of the things necessary to take baptism where we might do it in the church, take it, and then all of the people with it, mm. right? Because we talked about this the other episode, that baptism isn't done in private. It's done in public right. as part of a, a larger thing. And so moving all of the people to the place in which the baptism is going to occur. So my own baptism happened um, in the back of a yard of someone. I assume they must have had horses. I don't remember. Were you immersed in the yeah. water of the trough? Yes, yes. So, so an immersion baptism is different than, a, than the type of baptism that you may see at evangelical in the sanctuary in that um, an immersion, immersion baptism, you take your hand and you place it over your nose like this and then the person lays you backwards. But you definitely have to plug your nose or you could be in trouble. Um, and they lay you back into mm -hmm. the water. Um, and a Trinitarian baptism, you will see, often they'll dunk you three times mm. in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So hopefully you don't get dizzy going back and forth. And that's similar to what was done on that occasion of the young woman baptized in a swimming pool. Mm -hmm. um, the pastor who was leading the, the ritual mm -hmm. um, laid her gently back, but mm -hmm. fully immersed mm -hmm. into the water of the swimming pool three mm -hmm. times. Yeah. You used the, the phrase living water, mm -hmm. which um, is prominent in scripture. And mm -hmm. in because of that illusion, many Christian traditions will try to practice baptism in actual living water, meaning the flowing water of a stream, a river, or a creek, mm -hmm. uh, sometimes perhaps the water of a pond mm -hmm. or a lake. Um, in some places, you were referring to this also, talking about that chalice-shaped font mm -hmm. from which water overflowed. Yeah. I've seen elaborate baptistry spaces mm -hmm. in places of Christian worship that might have either above the floor or even below mm -hmm. the floor, some sort of baptismal pool mm -hmm. in which water is kept yeah. circulating. Yeah. Well, you know, what's interesting is, again, all of this comes from tradition. So the original tradition of being in a lake or a stream, there was a way to walk in on one side, the baptism occurred, and then you walked out the other side. And so what you'll see in a lot mm -hmm. of these early church baptistry or Baptist houses, because they were baptism houses at those times, is you would come in and you would be baptized. And the chrism oil, where right now what we tend to do at Evangelical is to to, to do just a little bit. They would pour the oil over their head and then put a white robe on them as they walked out the other side. Yeah. And so there are mm. differing styles, but the idea was... <clears throat> 
that you became a part of this living, moving water. And over time, just out of necessity, the baptismal font changed to, well, we're just mainly baptizing children now, which they were big enough, like the one I mentioned earlier that looked like a huge chalice. It's actually uh, at a church, at a Lutheran church downtown Houston, Texas. And it looks like it would be big enough to put a whole child down in. Mm. Now, I don't know if that's what they do. I've never been there for their baptism. But but we've seen um, images online probably of people dunking children into the water. Um, and then in time... Um, the the tradition of, well, you just need to get wet on their head. So scooping water, um, sometimes people stand in the water and the water is poured mm. over them. So there's a variety of different ways that yeah. you get wet. <laughs> As I say, the sky is the limit. Yeah. Um, in the history of Christian practice, almost every possible way of doing this has been done. Mm-hmm. Um it's not really a question of the amount of water or the mm-hmm. depth of the water, but there is always water. Mm-hmm. Water is essential to baptism. Well, when I was at CPE, when I'm thinking about the most CPE, interesting... CPE, Pastor oh, Bennett? yes, yes, sorry. Clinical pastoral education. Thank so you. So <laughs> as we are training and learning to become pastors, one of our requirements is to work as a hospital chaplain and to um, be available when people are in some of the most challenging and vulnerable times in their lives. And so one of the most, I would say for me, fascinating baptisms I was a part of was a child who was born early, uh, was premature, and um, the family, it was important to them that their baby was baptized right away. And so um, one of the nurses went and grabbed a cup mm-hmm. of water, and we baptized this child there in the hospital um, immediately after they were born. And um, then we gave them a baptismal certificate mm-hmm. and all of the good things. But the nurses and all of the family that was there uh, for the birth were able to be a part of it. So it, again, it was in community and had all of those folks holding them up and um, at least uh, for the time I knew, the child did continue to grow and, and do well. But it was very important to the family because it was touch and go for that child. They wanted to make sure their child got to participate in this rite of baptism. As I imagine in my mind's eye the horse trough that you were <laughs> describing in which you had been baptized, yes. I think of photographs I've seen of archaeological discoveries or in some cases just very, very old, preserved vessels used for Christian baptism, Mm, mm -hmm. which often look identically, either like a coffin, and we spoke before Uh, about that that biblical imagery of the new life in Christ that baptism inaugurates, simultaneously concluding Mm -hmm. the pre-baptized life, but if you think of that shape, also yeah. what might come to mind is a bathtub. Yes. And yes. very often the vessels for baptism can look like mm-hmm. a bathtub, mm-hmm. uh, often more ornamental than that. Here <laughs> at Evangelical Lutheran Church, we have a large, um, very old, well yeah. over a century old marble font. And I think I'm remembering correctly from what members of the congregation have told me that it weighs 
800 pounds. Wow, yes. I think it was dedicated in the 1800s. Yes, it's, it was. It's quite old and, and very lovely, but does not move very quickly It does or not easily. move very easily. <laughs> is, it is on very heavy-duty casters, so oh. it can be moved without lifting. I didn't know that. Good, because it should stay where it is. <laughs> but it is quite large. Yeah. It is able to hold several gallons mm -hmm. of water. Now, we never fill it to the brim, but we use copious amounts of water. And the person being baptized either leans over it, or in the case of a very small or young child, is lifted and held over mm -hmm. it. And we scoop water from the font and pour water over the head of the person mm -hmm. being baptized. Again, yeah. as you said, three times mm -hmm. as we do this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. In some places that I've seen, um, a, a scooping implement mm -hmm. of some sort, yes. either a real shell yes. or metal or ceramic artwork that has been crafted to look like a shell is used to scoop the water. My dear friend actually always uses a shell. She likes that imagery of abundance. And sometimes she will actually, for the, the asperging that we talked about the other week, she will actually take that shell holding a large amount of water and, and use that to help hmm. uh, the congregation remember their own baptism. Our practice here currently is we use our hands. Mm -hmm. um, but either way, any way that the yeah. water gets on you yes. is, is appropriate and, uh, and often it's a fun and wonderful, memorable experience, I think, for, for folks, uh, at least for the family gathered around, whether or not the person being baptized always remembers, um, the community uh, remembers, which is lovely. We'll have a chance to hear this in the sixth episode of this six-part series, when a member of this congregation, Angela Halko, will be with us as a guest in the podcast episode. We had spoken in a previous episode about the essential role of the larger community mm -hmm. that gathers. Mm -hmm. And so the whole gathered congregation at any occasion of baptism participates in the baptism in several ways, mm -hmm. one of which is to join the baptismal party in, this is actually a remnant of the medieval practice of exorcism, <laughs> uh, that before the person would put on Christ, the devil's claim upon that person is ritually mm -hmm. expelled exercised. or yeah. exercised. We don't do that in quite the same way, but we do ask the we entire do, yeah. community we to renounce. join again in renouncing mm -hmm. the devil, all that opposes God, mm -hmm. all that contradicts God's intention yeah. for human life, and then always as remembering our own baptism and as a public communal statement of belief or faith, we always um, recite together the Apostles' Creed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and that creed just... Really quickly, we have more than one creed that is used in the life of a church. Um, in the Lutheran faith, we 
we confess the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, and then there's that Athanasian Creed, which is very long and detailed. That's, that's for a later but, series but of what's, this podcast. But what's interesting, I know, but the uh, Apostles' Creed out of the three creeds is often referred to as the Baptismal mm-hmm. Creed because it is the simplest form of creed, and the idea is it is a welcoming point. It's a place to um, get to the the most basic understanding of what it is we believe that we all share together. And so it's a, um, yeah, it is the shortest creed as well. And you say we, which is important. Mm-hmm. People often notice, however, that the language of that creed is I. Yes. In the Nicene Creed, the Christian community confesses together, we believe. Mm-hmm. And in the Apostles' Creed, the language is, I believe. Mm-hmm. And that's not because we are privatizing <laughs> Christian faith. But in that particular creed, each person speaking together in a community of other Christians is also declaring their their personal, not private, but their personal mm-hmm. joining in this community faith. Which makes it a perfect creed for um, a baptism in that um, the family, or if it's an older uh, person that knows the creed, they can say themselves and affirm, this is what I believe um, as they take mm-hmm. part in the baptismal rite. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, in our baptism, it's not that we say the, bapti- the creed, the Apostles' Creed, just the way you would on a normal Sunday if we were to say the Apostles' Creed. It's actually broken out into the, the pieces of questions. Mm-hmm. Do you believe in God the Father? Yes. I believe in God the Father Almighty. You know, so it gives you that question and answer back and mm-hmm. forth, which again, invites people in to really think about what they are saying. Just like the questions um, invite us to um, say what we disagree with uh, is, you know, renouncing Satan and so forth. I hadn't thought about it in quite that way, but as listening to you this moment, it just triggered the thought. It's mm-hmm. the difference between responding and reciting. Mm-hmm. Yes, very much We so. are responding in faith, not mm-hmm. just reciting a formula. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so um, the, the one other piece that I think um, would be helpful to talk about, we talked a little bit about the oil that is placed yeah, on. Yeah, say more about that. And um, so that chrism oil, um, I love this image of marking people Um, In our church, we tend to do it as opposed to just dumping the oil over, which is absolutely a lovely image and feel. Um, But we take a little bit of oil and we make the sign of the cross on someone's forehead as we anoint them. And and then we place both hands on them as we... we, proclaim this wonderful good news. But to me, it's it's the sealing, right? That God is claiming and we are sealing that person. And we remember that in different stages of our life. We may invite people to retrace that cross on their forehead to remember that. I'm thinking oil saturates mm-hmm. scripture. Yeah. Um, it is used so often. There are so many references to oil mm-hmm. in Scripture. And in the cultures that were cultures of the origin of the biblical texts, oil was often used um, 
to welcome or receive mm -hmm. a traveler who had arrived at right. the end of a journey or someone who had completed a hard day's work. It was used to remove the dust mm -hmm. that would have collected on them to, to be to be skin. softening and refreshing. Mm -hmm. um, and then was also used as a way to mark a person for a significant change in life or the mm -hmm. acceptance mm -hmm. of a new responsibility mm -hmm. for the community. And even in modern cultures, mm -hmm. and that anointing is the word that is mm -hmm. very often used. The word anointing connected to the word ointment, mm -hmm. all of it having to do with oil. And this exactly is what the words Christ and Messiah mean. Christ comes from the Greek word for the anointed one, mm -hmm. and Messiah mm -hmm. from the Hebrew word for right. anointed one. Mm -hmm. And every baptized person with, a, with an amount of oil, as Pastor Bennett was just describing, is anointed. And with oil, the shape of the cross, the sign of the cross is mm -hmm. traced on their foreheads. Mm -hmm. And we also give folks a candle and uh, we light that and we tell them to go out and to let their light shine, which is a wonderful image of what hopefully we all do as we uh, live out our baptismal promises is to take that and not just hold it in for ourselves, but take it out and share it with those around us. Jesus' words included in the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew. He says at one point, let your light so shine before others mm -hmm. that they may see your good works and give God glory. That's one way of stating what we understand mm -hmm. to be the mission or the commission of the baptized mm -hmm. life. Before we end, I want to come back though. Um, you were talking about something. It's not currently part of practice here but many members of the congregation are familiar with it. The baptismal garment or oh, robe. Mm -hmm. Say more about that. Uh, so the idea, um, some people will go and, and buy a, a beautiful outfit or whatever, but this robe is something a little bit different. The idea being that, well, as you can see, Pastor Baglios and I are wearing just regular clothes that have color and so forth. And what happens when you um, baptize is what you find is the idea of that washing away. So this white robe is placed on the baptized, often signifying or showing that that cleansing of, of the sins and this new life that you're beginning. And so it's a, it's a beautiful thing. Again, some folks come to baptism already wearing white. Chrism, uh, uh, christening gowns are often white. Um, and I don't know that that takes away from it. It's just sort of that signal of a new life mm -hmm. that is beginning and that clean slate, if you will. I've known a number of families who have heirloom mm -hmm. baptismal garments. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And each person in the family, um, as they are baptized, that garment is put on them. Mm -hmm. um, it's beautiful. Well, thank you for joining us for this episode in our series on baptism. I'm Paul Baglios. And I'm Ginger Bennett. This has been Two Pews in a Pod, a podcast led by the pastors of Evangelical Lutheran Church in Frederick, Maryland. 
Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.